We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the new Zoom, nine weeks and Dave Woodard. Nine weeks until Christmas. You know what that means? Dads have not even began to think about it. Here's Scott Thompson. What did he say? It's too late now. It's behind us. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson in Hamilton today. Another jam-packed day. Another Well, not really. Not a lot going on. Just a lot of uh, extensions of stories that um, uh, we've already been covering. Uh, flu and, and hospital emissions uh, but continue to uh, be an issue in uh, Canadian hospitals uh, from east to west, north to south and such. Listen to this. Let's just hypothetically say we have peaked. That would be great. But it's a long way down the other side of the mountain, which means there's still a lot of flu season ahead and you should still be getting protection. And then on the, and, and in the same breath, of course, like we're about to enter the holiday season. We're going to have innumerable uh, close contacts with people. Fine. Great. Celebrate. Have a wonderful time, but do so responsibly. And you know what? We, we played the clips of Dr. Kieran Moore yesterday. We even had Dr. Isaac Bogosh on, who you've just heard a clip of uh, there. And in regard to the messaging around where we are in the flu. And um, I played the clips of Dr. Kieran Moore, so I remember what he said. And, you know, it's amazing how we listen to five, six-second clips of this stuff and then assume we know the whole story or it is taken out of context and such. And uh, so basically, I want to reiterate what the doctor said. And what he said was uh, stats are showing that numbers are down. So that's just the reality. Uh, You know, it's not. uh, And with that, he suggested this may. And he said may have peaked following Australia and and other regions that started early uh, and, in fact, may finish early. Uh, He didn't tell anybody to go running naked through a field of daisies and start kissing people. He didn't tell you to stop doing what you're doing. He didn't tell you to not use your head and where you think you need it, wear a mask uh, and get your vaccinations and all that sort of stuff. You know, that all continues. But it's amazing how we listen to little two and three and four second clips of something. And then he said it's over. He said, well, no, that's not what was said at all. It was said that the numbers are showing that the, that the numbers are coming down. That's what it said. He suggested that may mean that we are past the worst of it, that we have peaked. Nobody said it was over. Nobody said go running through a field of daisies naked kissing everybody. Everybody has said, you know what you need to do? We've been through holidays before and another one's on the way. And we do know, as one caller said on the show yesterday, you know, how can he say that? We're heading into the holidays. And it's like, how can he say what? The truth? That numbers have dipped? That doesn't mean they're not going to go up again. That doesn't mean that, you know, uh, we can't see a spike or something through the holidays. Nobody's telling you to change protocol. But again, instead of using any kind of common sense or listening to everything that is being said, the whole story, we run around, you know, and here's this, you know, and you feel sorry for people who have the job of, uh, of delivering this information to us. 
And, you know, if, if you know, they come up with a, a fully prepared message and everybody gets, you know, pissed off if they de- when they don't answer questions beyond that finely crafted answer. But if they go beyond the finely crafted answer, then everybody starts throwing hooks into them. Well, what about, 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 and then we end up like NASI and Health Canada and some saying this about vaccination and some saying about that. So at the end of the day, I think it's really, really important here that we listen to the entire message and not just the five seconds or 10 seconds that comes at us through social media or, or through any type of media for that matter. And, 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 and keep it all in context. Nobody said it was over. Nobody said throw caution to the wind. They're just repeating the factual statistical information, which some call transparency. So once again, can we please get these discussions out of the extreme left, out of the extreme right, and come together (laughs) with knowledge from all sides of the equation and then come to a position and an answer uh, that is well thought out. But again, you know, and, and I know we live in a fast food world and everything comes at us, that, 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 that. But, but again, sometimes we got to step back and, and figure out what question we're a- uh, asking and what, in fact, answer are we looking for? Or do we just keep asking the question until we get the answer we want? Which, I don't know. I I don't think that's the direction we want to go in. This is one question I want to ask Andrew Enns is, I remember a time when many said, you know, the young people are younger people. The young people. (laughs) You know, you can say that when you're 60. Uh, Young people aren't really interested in politics. They're really not interested in the issues of the day. Um, You know, they're they're just trying to get through, get ahead, move on. And I, I think that has changed quite a bit. Young Canadians are increasingly pessimistic about Canada's economic situation compared to a year ago. Hey, there's some late information for a Friday afternoon. And, and you know, we, we remember the, uh, lots talking about how leaving the job and such. Maybe not necessarily the case. This is a new poll from Leger, a new survey, uh, and looking at those between the ages of 15 and 39 on finance, the future, and employment. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, very well, Scott. Good to uh, good to join you again. So, uh, and we thank you for that. Uh, you know, this is fascinating because, as I mentioned at the beginning of all of this, I remember a time when many thought, including politicians, and didn't really gear towards them, that young people really weren't paying much attention. Uh, they had other bigger things going on in their life, bigger fish to fry, so to speak. Uh, but now it seems more and more younger Canadians, obviously those in the age between 15 and 39, we'll say under 40, are more and more aware. Would you say that's the case now? Are, are younger? Is the younger generation becoming more? More interested in these issues? Uh, yeah, I'd say that's the case, uh, Scott. I mean, you, you you see it in some of the activism. Um, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago we saw the young activist Greta Thunberg and how she kind of galvanized uh, folks around climate change. Mm-hmm. I, I think you certainly see, you know, kind of awareness and uh, and um, you know, kind of engaging on some of these things. I I think where there's still the the missing point here, the missing is the is to take it to the next step and really kind of uh, bring that to bear on the on the political leadership and and governments to sort of force change. I think they make you know it's almost like they make noise, hmm. but it doesn't necessarily kind of go the next mile. Where well, and again, if you want to get a politician's attention, 
um, you know, you kind of got to show up at the ballot box, right? Yeah, vote. Yeah, and, and that is where I think they still there. There's a missing. Um, there's a bit of a missing uh, step here, but we may be getting closer to seeing some some of that actually start to uh, to take shape because there are some strong concerns that this uh, this generation has. Is it that it is now affecting them? Uh, mainstream stuff would now be affecting them, whether it's they're looking to excel in their career uh, in, in, in finding that journey incredibly difficult, whether they're looking to buy a new house. We know what all that, you know, what all of that is about. Uh, it, it's now to a point where this is affecting a younger generation where at one time would usually only worry the moms and dads. Um you know, I think it's it's a it's probably a combination of that, Scott. But I also think that there's there's the uh, the whole social media and just the the whole availability of that that information and that conversation mm. is now in a form where it's much more accessible for yeah. that uh, that generation. So it's not just it's not just the you know the old adults talking down and, and passing the information in their own old adult traditional ways of mm. the newspaper or the the TV six o'clock news. It's coming at them all over the place and it's coming at them in really interesting forms. Like it's coming through TikTok, uh, like all kind. And so I think there's a certain, it's it's much more dige- digestible for uh, for this group. And I think that is is raising kind of the whole uh, awareness and, and in our numbers, you know, a bit of that pessimism and angst, uh, you know, because now all of a sudden they're, you know, like, how am I ever going to do this? <laughs> they're getting it from all angles, literally. That's an excellent yeah. point. Uh, so what are those between 15 and 39 most concerned about? And start wherever you want. What's the biggest concern? Well, you know, so you touched on it on your on your thing. I mean, the the uh, the economy, uh, sort of the whole job, uh, and and extend that sort of for for that generation, their ability to to kind of make their life, and and for for some of them, it's it's obviously you know they they factor in owning property and owning a house mm-hmm. at some point as part of that's my that's my journey of life, and they sort of get you know you can get depressed in a hurry if you start to focus on that. Yeah. How is it going to ever work? Um, I think the economy is a concern because it sort of ties into that a bit. And, you know, and I, uh, I've i said this, I think we've, it's not just this generation, but I think this generation has probably been hit by it a little more acutely. But we were we were fighting through 2021 in the pandemic and, and mm. finally got to that vaccination point and we felt Oh my God, 2022 is going to be so much better. I can't wait. We're going to have no lockdowns, no masks. And we walked right out into our, patios and festivals and got whacked with rising costs and inflation like we've never like this generation yeah. had never seen before mm. and so um and so they're that's that's hurting really that's hurting hard and 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 they don't feel good about where things are going economically um and i think there's a well the other big issue that i think is is always on you know this generation's mind is climate uh you know mm. climate change and i think what i see in these numbers is a real frustration that because of other events, whether it's the, you know, the need to really get our economies going, so suddenly climate's some, taking a bit of a backseat. The war in Ukraine has suddenly said, you know, we got to get we got to get oil to Ukraine and help them. We got to sort right. of put climate on the back. I think this this is frustrating for them, and it's it's a bit depressing. That's interesting as well. Uh, what about employment? Um, we heard a lot saying they were going to take off and switch careers. Not so much of that happening as we thought. 
Yeah, we see we see a bit of a sh- you know a bit of a shift there, and I and I actually think it's somewhat tied to the the uh, pessimistic outlook regarding the economy that mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, whereas uh, you know it might have been a um, you know kind of an employees market, uh, you know, the last couple of years, uh, you know, and certainly maybe during the pandemic, I think it's become a bit more of an employers market, and so you see we see in our uh, our numbers a much higher percentage of. Uh, of our, uh, you know, this this generation says they're going to stay, um, you know, they're going to stay put uh, this year compared to, you know, we had 25% of the of this generation that was working said they uh, they might quit their job in the next year, and mm. that's basically halved. It's now 13%. So, so I think a much more stable. Uh, I think a bit of a of a let's dig in and, and we'll we'll put up with the job and let's just see where where this 2023 uh where we end up at the end of the year andrew ends with us executive vice president central canada for leger research young canadians and where their heads are at this stage of life coming out of a global pandemic andrew as always thank you for the time be well yeah thank you scott and listen i you probably won't talk have yourself a very merry christmas eh you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Emergency preparedness uh, minister uh, Bill Blair is speaking now uh, in regard to uh, uh, emergency preparedness. And I guess uh, obviously a, a topic of interest at this point where we are considering uh, the Freedom Convoy and the Emergency Act inquiry and such. Uh, to talk about all things security, uh, Phil Gersey with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow at the University of Na- uh, Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst, and with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Nice to talk to you again, Scott. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, obviously, Phil, you can't speak to this because it's happening right now, but I was saw earlier that uh, Bill Blair was meeting uh, with these ministers over emergency preparedness. Is this all, do you think, around the, uh, the, the issues that happened in Ottawa with the convoy and just being betty, uh, better prepared and having a some sort of, of leadership plan for all of this? Well, I think there's been an awful lot of questioning, Scott, oft, obviously in the wake of the Freedom Convoy and the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act in February about how we're placed here in Canada when it comes to emergency preparedness. I would like to think that the minister is you know, constantly looking at the agencies which are responsible. Are they fully resourced? Do they have the right mechanisms in place and things like that? You never take national security and public safety for, for granted. You're always sort of, you know, kicking the tires, see if everything's okay. So whether or not Mr. Blair is, uh, you know, going to harp on what happened in February as a way to justify once again the the use of the Emergency Act, I have no idea. But, you know, national security doesn't take a rest. And, and you know, we're, we're approaching the Christmas holidays now. Everyone takes a break. But uh, those who work in national security don't take a break. They're there 24-7. And that will include law enforcement as well to make sure that Canadians are safe. Uh, obviously, uh, and we've talked about this before, uh, especially with the Ottawa precinct, there's like uh, four different uh, services, police services involved there. Um, will this or should this, can this end in a central plan? So when, uh, you know, the poop hits the fan, <laughs> this guy's in charge, then this person, this person, this one, and here's the plan. I mean, is that really hard to do in this situation? We had the same conversation, Scott, back in October, after October of 2014, you'll recall, when Michael Zahapi Bo killed Corporal mm-hmm. Nathan Cirillo at the National Cenotaph and then raced on the Parliament Hill and got within the few meters of the central block. And even then, there was a, you know, I don't know if I called it an, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a, an official inquiry per se, but they said, 
we had the same issue. We had Ottawa police that that patrolled essentially up to uh, to the Wellington Street, with the RCMP responsible for the grounds of Parliament. Then we had Senate and Parliamentary police within the blocks themselves. Was much changed since then? Possibly. But if we're asking ourselves the same questions, what, almost nine years later, that certainly suggests to me that the jurisdictional issue has not been resolved yet. And as you said, it, it's not rocket science, but um, if the death of Nathan Cirillo and the almost you know shooting of the prime minister at the time did not lead to significant change, the obvious question is, well, what exactly would it take to do so? Uh, anybody that's been across the country knows wherever there isn't uh, municipal police, there's provincial police. Where there isn't provincial police, there's RCMP. So would that not be the just automatic default position? RCMP, uh, here's the plan, and here's how the rest of the services follow along. I think so. Uh, you know, you take other countries, such as New Zealand, which is obviously a lot smaller than we are. They only have one police force for the entire country. New Zealand police covers all the way from the tip of the North Island to the tip of the South Island. But, you know, there's there's historical reasons, of course. A lot of municipalities uh, like their local police. I remember, you know, driving through Renfrew, Ontario, just north of Ottawa, on my way to the cottage. There's still a sign there that says, you know, bring back the Renfrew Municipal Police and kick out the RC or the OPP, rather. Yeah. And so it's, you know... I think emotions run high. I think there's a lot of tradition there. And so just saying that, just give the, the reins of the RCMP, no pun intended, uh, is going to be a difficult uh, sale to make. All right, let's change uh, gears here and talk about um, uh, alleged Chinese interference in Canadian elections. Uh, this started with a investigative report from Sam Cooper of Global News uh, that that had said that CSIS or uh, they certainly were aware that there is some sort of interference uh, in the election. Are you surprised that CSIS hasn't come out and said more about this as opposed to just somehow, whether it was leaked, or how this information got to this reporter. Are you surprised they haven't come out and talked more about what they have found, or is that not their role here? I'm not surprised at all. I mean, CSIS, you know, when you work for CSIS, Scott, there's there's one thing that's sort of, you know, tattooed onto your brain, and that is you always protect sources and methods. So I think what they're afraid of is that if they say too much, People might put two and two together and figure out exactly all the information was gathered, whether it be a human source or a Section 21 warrant, which is a federal court warrant to disrupt communications or allied information or whatever. This is why CSIS is reticent. But I think the important point to to make here is that CSIS would have provided what it knew to the relevant authorities at the time. It's called the need to know principle, which really means if you need to know it, you're going to know it. And something as serious as an allegation that, you know, China has been interfering with our elections back in 2019 or 2021, uh, which, by the way, falls under Section 2B of the CSIS Act, foreign interference, that intelligence would have been provided to the highest levels of Canadian government, in my experience. I never worked China, but this is what I understand how the sausage is made. So the information was passed, but I don't know. I don't expect CSIS to go public anytime soon to say, here's how we got the information or more details, because that's just not the nature of a spy service is to, you know, uh, open up to the Canadian public. Would we have found out about this interference had this reporter not found out? And I don't know how they did, whether it's a secret source or what have you. Um, um, but has this sausage already been made, per se? <laughs> Are we not already doing this? Well, if you meant by we, meaning Canadians, we've been, you know, CSIS has been warning about this, you know, China's activities here in Canada, not necessarily limited to election interference, but harassment of Chinese Canadians, 
uh, threatening them, etc. We've been talking about this for 25 years, Scott. And and the fact that governments have ignored it is a, is perhaps a much bigger question. But you know, I think as consumers of information, and I count myself among those too. I mean, I'm I'm retired. I don't have access to intelligence anymore. We obviously, I think, want to learn more. Um, and CSIS will throw out the old, you know, piece of bait once in a while. But, uh, you know, the fact that China is not our friend and is doing things in our backyard that is not in Canada's interest, this is a story as old as time. And the fact that it involves election interference may be a bit of a new wrinkle. But no, this is this is not something that we, you know, we should be, you know, shocked at what China is doing. We've known this for a very, very long time. So will we ever know who these 11 MPs are? Um, obviously, if they know they're 11 MPs, they must know who they are. So it, would that information ever come out? Is that relevant? Wow. You're asking me all these great questions in the midst of a blizzard here outside of Ottawa. Um, <laughs> Probably not. Uh, I mean, that was probably deemed as insensitive intelligence. I, I don't think it uh, takes a rocket scientist to suggest pro- who the MPs might be. Just look at their writings where there's a large Chinese Canadian population that may be open to influence by the PRC government under, thre- under threats or payments, whatever. So I think, you know, we can probably figure out exactly who it is to a certain extent. Is it important? No. The important thing, Scott, is that a foreign power interfered in our free and democratic process. That in and of itself is is worrisome to the nth degree for Canadians and the specifics of which writings, which MPs. Yeah, it'd be nice to know, but the bottom line for me is that Canada cannot allow this to happen and has to take some serious action against the Chinese government. Phil Gursky with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow at the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst, enjoying the snow in Ottawa right now. <laughs> Phil, have a great weekend. Thanks for you the time. Too. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. All right, we have talked uh, at length, but not for a long time, uh, probably before the pandemic, about uh, MAID, medical, medical Assistance in Dying. And there was a lot of debate whether this should even be started and such, and, and you know, off we go, we know where we are. Uh, but now, uh, more concern about MAID when it comes to people who are suffering from mental health uh, conditions. Is this something that should be added to medical assistance in dying? And uh, the federal government has decided to put a pause on this until they get more information and figure out what's going on uh, on whether people with mental health conditions um, should be eligible for uh, medical assistance in dying. Let's talk to Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist and assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, the University of Toronto, and with us now. Dr. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Very well indeed. Happy to be here. So this is a tough one, Doctor. Is there any discussion to be had between um, uh, mental illness and medical assistance in dying? Is this cut and dry, or is this something that has to we have to try to balance? Well, it's nowhere near cut and dry, and you know it's a very very complex area, and um, you know we're hearing just today and yesterday, just in the last couple of days that in fact legislation may be altered so that the launch date, which is March 17th, when remember that as a primary diagnosis of a mental health disorder, um, that would become eligible uh, March 17th, 2023, which is very close now. And that may be pushed back. 
So let me just start by saying this. Now, the fact that it's pushed back does not mean that the nation of Canada is taking a deep breath and saying, wow, should we be doing this at all? That's not really what's going on here. Uh, the pushback is so that the medical community, particularly in psychiatry, uh, can develop protocols and procedures that are considered to be fair and balanced. Mm. So that is the concern. And, and so it's not that we're rethinking the whole thing. It's we're thinking, how do we do it fairly? And I don't want to sound too cynical, but I am a person that's worked in the healthcare field for a long time. And, you know, what I worry about is that not much will have changed after six months or a year. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. But uh, the heart it, of the question with, 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 you know, mental health disorders is, you know, the, the thinking is that people suffering from mental health disorders, that's the, that's a suffering that's deeper or as deep and, and as difficult as people that have cancer. Now, cancer, it could be pain and, you know, mental health, it could be a, a very different form of suffering. But we are going in that direction. Now, the concern would be we're doing a terrible job at controlling for vulnerabilities like poverty, uh, like homelessness, like unemployment, all those factors. And the reality is, and look, I say this as a person that's worked with many people with mental health disorders, the incidence of people living in poverty and unemployment, et cetera, uh, amongst the people that have mental health disorders is extremely high. And the reason it's high is they're not well enough often to, to be able to organize those types of things. So it's a real tough one as to why people are making this request and what we should be doing about it. I can think just over the issue of consent alone, because we know with the current made uh, uh, um, directives that, you know, you have to be at a certain state in order to say this is okay. And if your illness has made you progress beyond that and you can't, then you don't qualify anymore. So I I can see how this is just going to increasingly be a more complex issue. But let me ask you this, because some have said, some have said, Kerry, that, you know, this is forcing people to make uh, the decision between I can't get the service or the quality of service that I need, so I'm just going to die. I'm just going to bail is it quality of life service uh, or lack of quality of life service that we have they can't get into there isn't enough of what have you versus death or is it no service uh help is going to help me i have what i have and and then i've decided to make this decision well the latter is what we hoped for but i'll tell you the reality is you know you can't get help and when you know and the pandemic has done some real damage it's blown holes in our healthcare system which was not yeah. perfect to begin with the other thing is all of us all of us are not really in the same mental health form as we were before the pandemic it, it's taken a toll and on some people much more than others so this is a very difficult time but you know so i, I just want to be clear like consent is really tough with mental health disorders yeah but you know this is not as if someone's in an acute depressive state saying i wish i was dead i want to commit suicide do this for me i mean it, it that would not be an eligibility criteria what would be is people that have struggled with mental health disorders over a long period of time have not responded to treatment and are stable at the time of the request now that still doesn't answer all questions and there could, you know, but, but the amount, the waiting time for support with mental health disorders is so huge that to discern, you know, who could have been helped, who couldn't have been helped, who's giving up, who's not is very, very difficult. How do you balance, even with what you just said, Carrie, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm at my, I'm out, I'm done. I want to commit suicide. You do this for me. How do you prevent that from happening? 
Well, you know, you can indeed see someone that's in an acute depressive state. I mean, there is, you, you really can diagnose that to an extent. Um, you know, you can see someone that's suicidal and they would not be eligible. So, you know, things right. like depression do ebb and flow and this would not be, um, right. you know, the, the question is people that really, really struggle with, let's say, depression, you know, is there ever a point in their lives, even when they're not in a strongly depressive state, where they have any sense of optimism towards the future? Um, that's the question. But here's the thing. If we simply say this is too complicated and we're not going to do it, is that really fair to Canadians where, you know, people with, with you know, cancers and things like that who don't, who don't, uh, can't be treated, uh, can exit, and, and people with mental health disorders that are really suffering and have never responded can't. So it's a tough one. But, you Dr. know, we Carey. were very naive, and I, I somewhat include myself in this. Uh, going back to 2016, I, I wasn't the worst actor, but I, I am partly so. We were very naive to think that we could control for social determinants of health, poverty, homelessness, all of these things, that these things we could just parcel off and separate from our assessment because we can't. And now we're not sure what to do with it. Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, bioethicist and assistant professor, Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, uh, medical assistance in dying for the mentally ill. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're very welcome. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, whether it's um, uh, House Democrats uh, trying to remove uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, former U.S. President Donald Trump, from ever uh, running again, whether it's a special counsel investigation uh, into his behavior, actually laying charges, whether it's about trading cards or how he's doing in the polls. Let's find out with Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. I've been seeing a little bit about polling in the United States, that there are some other Republicans that seem to be polling better uh, than the former president. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, look, Donald Trump uh, came out with a big splash when he announced his presidency for 2024. The problem here, Scott, is that it's incredibly early. And oftentimes, history shows those who jump in the pool uh, kind of before anyone else, they struggle to maintain momentum. The second issue here is Donald Trump's favorability numbers, not just recently, but for the last kind of year or so, have been falling. Uh, and there are other Republicans, as you mentioned, that are kind of getting the attention from some of the base. And that number one points to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, where his numbers, uh, according to, uh, I believe it's the Wall Street Journal, had him up 52-38 over Donald Trump. And um, USA Today had him somewhere within those numbers, maybe 56 or 57 to 33. Uh, and these are numbers that are frustrating to Donald Trump. They're frustrating to those who are steadfast within the camp. And it shows that this potentially could become a fight within the Republican Party against a Donald Trump and a potential Donald Trump light. What would Donald Trump do to try to regain uh, some more control, to try to regain the momentum? It's difficult to know. Uh, you know, he didn't do well uh, in the midterms when it came to his uh, chosen candidates. Many of them failed to uh, to kind of move forward or, or simply lost their primaries to begin with. Uh, and he also is being backed into a corner by a number of investigations, as you had mentioned, by that ongoing special counsel issue. Uh, so it's hard to see how Donald Trump can maintain his grip. 
That grip still does exist, though. There is still, um, you know, a large number of people, especially within the House of Representatives, that still hold Donald Trump kind of high above the party. Uh, so what we are going to see, especially when the new Congress comes in in January, is an internal split against kind of what's left of the old GOP, those that are staying behind Donald Trump. And now he's going to have to work for the next couple of years if he wants to ensure that they are going to give him the nod when it comes time uh, for nominations. Uh, that being said, what can the others do? Obviously, momentum now strictly in their favor. Uh, and as you said, still quite a ways out. Can many see that only growing? Is it up to the others to make a mistake for him, Trump to get ahead? Well, I think you're going to see people kind of take things slowly. Uh, number one, if especially if we're talking about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Yes, he's leading in polls right now, but he is not a declared candidate and under Florida state law, uh, somebody who holds a state office cannot run for a federal office without resigning from their position. It's mm -hmm. likely that Florida politicians would likely, you know, remove that law should Ron DeSantis want to put his name in the hat. But he also understands, again, that you can flame out if you jump in too early. So I think, you know, we may see some Republicans try to see if Donald Trump maybe peters out over the next couple of months and somebody else is able to gain momentum. But this campaign for 2024 is long underway already. And you will see people like Ron DeSantis or like Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin start to become more national profiles uh, to ensure that maybe the base that isn't behind them right now slowly starts to recognize who they are. Uh, you talked about him petering out. Um, there was an announcement that he was going to make a big announcement coming up and people thought it was going to be presidential related or what have you. Instead, it turns out to be uh, an offer to buy trading cards of his. Um, when you're hearing things like that from somebody who is supposedly going to run, um, does that just make you uh, that plus running early, throw your hands in the air? I mean, is this all we got, so to speak? Well, I mean, you know, part of it is the media's fault. It's it's partly our fault for, for giving into that because this is a play from Donald Trump's book, especially if he is in an unfavorable position or situation, get media attention on him so he can go and do something. The media then kind of spins and says, what were we doing? And at the end of the day, Donald Trump is going to make money and Donald Trump is going to remain in the news. We've seen this for years going and we will continue to see this for years in the future. Um, at the end of the day, this was just a moment for Donald Trump to ensure that he was staying in the spotlight and that the problems that are piling up under donald trump are simply not being talked about i guess my point was are people were people expecting more um than trading cards out of this announcement? sure sure i think that i think that there were i think there were people who were out there uh you know possibly considering maybe donald trump was going to try and usurp kevin mccarthy for house speaker uh and try to put himself uh in in the in the running to become the speaker of the house because you don't have to be a sitting lawmaker and that would put him third in line to the presidency after the vice president and then the house speaker so uh i think there was a, a kind of possibility here that you know, something was going to come politically out of this. But at the end of the day, the world was duped and we fell for it. Yeah. Uh, House Democrats introduced a bill that could bar him from running. Is this worth even going down this road? Are you not more uh, more or less drawing attention to the base, getting them fired up? Can you do this? Is Will this be successful? Probably not successful and only because uh, we're running out of time in Washington for anything to really get passed. I mean, they they really struggled to try and get government funding to the president's desk with only a couple of days left. This made its way through the House. It'll likely die in the Senate if it gets there because you need 60 votes to pass something. Uh, right. and, and you're not going to get 10 Republicans who are going to go on the side of disqualifying Donald Trump. The second part of that, and 
I'm not a, a constitutional scholar, but from the reading, uh, the 14th Amendment may not apply to the presidency because it talks about congressional uh, members and, and senators and people who hold state office. It's never been tried against a president, so it would likely wind up before the courts. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this will be a symbolic gesture by the House that will fall to the floor when Republicans pick up the House in early January. Uh, what about the special counsel investigation? Uh, talking about charges in the first uh, few months of this year, where's that going? So the special counsel investigation is moving rather quickly, and there are a number of avenues it's following. Number one, Jack Smith is taking over the, the investigation into the documents linked to the storage uh, of presidential and, and government records at Mar-a-Lago. That is moving forward. So, too, are a number of subpoenas that were handed out to state lawmakers in Georgia and Arizona and New Mexico and Pennsylvania, uh, showing that the Department of Justice is going to carry this through, regardless of what the political climate is in D.C. when it's a split government with Republicans. Uh, this special counsel I- intends to uh, do the job that it needs to do. Uh, and, you know, there could be additional matters that the DOJ is going to be looking at because we heard today the January 6th committee is likely going to make criminal referrals against Donald Trump uh, following all of their investigations they did over the last six months. So if that falls in the hands of the special counsel, he will have three different roads that he is walking down and all of them pose problems politically for the former president. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. As always, Reggie, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Happy Friday. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in uh, Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Lots to talk about, whether it's um, government, civil uh, servants, public servants, uh, federal level, have uh, they're trying to get them to go back to work uh, two to three days a week. The union says that needs to be negotiated. Uh, that and, and why is Shell Canada scooping up gas stations around the country? Uh, Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. First of all, uh, obviously, I know you've spent a lot of time in Ottawa. What are your thoughts on uh, uh, the civil service, the public service returning back to work? Uh, And I I never thought of this, but does this add a whole different dimension to collective bargaining? Uh, The unions are saying, you know, I'm not sure that's the way to go right now. We may have to talk about this. Where's this going? Um, First off, um, the story, and not because of any fault of the media, I assure you, um, it, it, the, the, what's actually going on in Ottawa is not being reported uh, because there's a lot of hidden agendas. I've lived in Ottawa all my life. Full disclosure, I have uh, two daughters-in-law in the government as I speak, subject to these work orders back to work. Um, I'm I'm very privy to all of the uh, orders from deputy ministers, assistant deputy ministers going out, as well as what the unions are saying. But let me, I, I also study this because I did my, my PhD thesis on the origins and evolution of Canada Post, which was and is a government of Canada agency. So let me just put this out very, very quickly. Um, there, there's, I'm going to be colorful because I like to be colorful. There's a war going on in Ottawa and I don't mean a shooting war with guns mm-hmm. and I'm talking inside the public service, the treasury board, which is an organ, a government department established by parliament and deemed to be the employer of the public service. So whenever they negotiate, whenever there's negotiations with unions, it's this government agency called the treasury board, just an archaic term. Just think of them as the, they employ, they negotiate with all the unions. 
There's another department in Ottawa, a very important department, kind of boring but important, called the Department of Public Works, created in 1867 to do what? Create government departments for all the bureaucrats to work in. Public Works for the last three, four years has been, they manage all the high-rise buildings, whether they're leased or owned by the government. They have been, and I know people that work there without naming any names, they have been dumping leases when they come to the end of their life, you know, because they have five-year lease, 10-year lease, whatever. They've been mm-hmm. dumping leases as furiously and fast as they can, as and they're trying to dump buildings they own, selling them off to the private sector to turn them into condos, whatever. Right now, as we speak, there are far less chairs or, or offices where, you know, people can sit and work than there are public servants. So public works is going in one direction, which is to downsize the physical or a footprint hmm. and the available seats uh, in, in the governor cabinet in the national capital region. On the other hand, the treasury board, which is uh, working as um, uh, the, the treasurer, the, the minister responsible is uh, from Vanier, which is the, the Francophone community or uh, region inside the city of Ottawa. And, uh, and she's a cabinet member. And they uh, have close ties. The Liberal government of Ottawa has close ties with councillors at the city of Ottawa level and local business. All the MPs in Ottawa are Liberal MPs. There are no Conservative MPs in Ottawa or NDP MPs. And the business community and the councillors have been saying, please, please, please save us. Our downtown is destroyed. It's a ghost town. Our businesses are failing. Please make those public servants go back to work so they'll start spending Mm. in the downtown and we can save the downtown. So what's going on is the public servants who actually work in the public service, of which is over 130,000 in Ottawa, don't want to go back to work for a whole bunch of reasons. First off, there aren't enough cubicles. There aren't enough. So what they're doing is they're going into work, and I know this is going on, and they're sitting there talking on Teams and Zoom to other public servants in the next building because they're scattered around. They're not any. They're not uh, sitting all in one place. You know, all the members of one department are no longer in one physical place. So they're literally doing, they're Zooming and, and Teaming from Microsoft Teams to other workers in the public service, <laughs> sometimes in the same building. Okay, that's how crazy it is. Whereas the government's agenda is to work, be they want the they want to win again in the next election. So they are doing this. This 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 agenda is to essentially save the downtown of the city of Ottawa. To full disclosure, I've commented on this frequently on local radio in the city of Ottawa on CFRA and on thirteen ten Rogers, and and I've said publicly repeatedly, it is not the role and the purpose and the mission of the government of Canada to adopt policies to save councillors at the local municipal level from their own incompetence of over Hmm. becoming over-reliant on the government of Canada, which they have been for many, many years. They have now in a pickle, they're losing money like crazy. The transit is, is deeply in debt because there's no riders and they, the municipal level is going to have to save themselves from their own pickle and not be looking to the government of Canada and the taxpayers of Canada as their sugar daddy to bail them out. This is right now a bailout of the city of Ottawa. Where is this going then? Well, the unions are uh, very, very angry, as you can imagine. First off, the parking downtown is inadequate. It's become very expensive. And the transit system has all kinds of problems. 
and uh, and and it's costly to go downtown, as you can imagine. People are spread out all over on the on the Gatineau side of the city of Ottawa. Uh, Ottawa, the city of Ottawa is on the on the Ottawa River. On the other side of the river is is the province of Quebec, Gatineau. But it's one sort of integrated city. And and I have not spoken to a public servant who wants to go back into work. They're working remotely. And you got to remember, many public servants are sitting in front of a computer all day long, and they're looking at data, and processing data. They're not sitting around, you know in a marketing team developing strategies. They're working with the data set on their screen. They're symbolic analysts, to use another phrase. Most of them are not in teams in the traditional sense of the word. They're just sitting there processing files, processing data. They don't need to be at a desk. They can do that just as easily on a computer in their house. And and I'm talking the the techno structure, the middle level. I'm not talking the top levels of the senior levels. And and so I think the unions are going to push back very hard. Remember, the whole public service is unionized. There's multiple unions mm-hmm. in the government of Canada. So I think that there's a battle royale coming uh, in Ottawa. In my lifetime, there's only been one major strike, and that was that very major strike back in 1992, uh, the public service strike that shut down the government. So if they, they don't back down on this or come up with a compromise, I think there could be some big troubles ahead. And the Liberals, ironically, the Liberal government, which is doing this, they think to, you know, they want to save their seats in Ottawa. This could lead to a blowback whereby large numbers of uh, public servants in the next election vote against their liberal MPs and throw them out of office, which is antithetical to what the Mr. Trudeau and the, and the Treasury Board Minister are trying to achieve. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, is trying to squeeze in as much as we can. We will talk about Shell Canada scooping up gas stations next time. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. Same to you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Um, uh, oh, and a reminder, uh, after 6 o'clock, uh, Rick Zamprin, uh, myself, Bill Kelly, I'll be joining Scott Radley on his show. He's promised to buy us all dinner, and uh, it's going to be quite an interesting spread. And, uh, yeah, that's the only reason I'm in, for the free food. Uh, more on that coming up uh, after 6 o'clock. All right. Uh, we were just talking last hour uh, in regard to uh, the civil service federal civil service in ottawa and any other city that has uh employees of the federal civil service uh going back to work in the new year two to three days uh but the unions say there's no way and they're pushing back they say this is part of a negotiation uh situation as we talked with ian lee a little earlier uh this is a much bigger issue than uh returning to work and uh flus or viruses or or any of that it has more to do with a completely changing template in a government town uh, which is used to having people coming into the downtown core and use transit and such, which is now not the case. So how do they deal with that? So there's a couple of different issues at play here. Uh, the union, though, using uh, safety concerns around having uh, a, a model to return to work, can we still can we still use those uh, reasons for not going back? Is the pandemic, is the flu, or the respiratory virus that we're experiencing that is obviously uh, uh, um, congesting hospitals yet again is that all enough or are we out of this and it is time to go back that's the end of the story if you want to go back and and if you don't want to go back and base it on your efficiencies or how the how your work has changed whatever that's one thing but for health is that still a valid reason let's bring in thomas 10k professor school of occupational and public health toronto metropolitan university and with us now thomas thanks for the time hope you're well 
Um, yeah, thanks, Scott. I, a bit bit croaky at the moment. I must admit, I picked up a bit of a flu uh, last week, and uh, yeah, so so I know all about this right at the moment. <laughs> there you go. You're one of the many that are suffering as well. Here's hoping it's through you uh, by the time the holidays uh, roll around. So obviously, we knew this was coming, Thomas. That um, you know people were going to slowly be going back to work. It was actually about a year ago we were talking about this, and then Omicron hit, and now obviously in the new year, more and more people are talking about this. Uh, I think the the situation in Ottawa the, in the public service is a little different because there's a lot of different elements to this other than health. Uh, however, that's uh, one of the main concerns that is coming out from what the unions are saying um, and, and going back two to three days a week and such. How concerned should we still be over uh, the global pandemic, over uh, the respiratory virus or, or even the flu about heading back indoors in the winter? Is this something we can still use as a reason for being concerned? concern or is it time to embrace this and and just continue on uh, yeah i think from my, from my perspective and uh you know looking at the data and you know a broader public health perspective i think we we still have to be uh cautious about all of this because you know if we look at the history we've, we've you know over the last couple of years we've had a definite surge in in numbers for for covid in you know sort of late january early february and that that's when we've had the the really major peaks and, and if we track back to the numbers that we were leading up to that, we, we're, we're tracking in the same sort of numbers as, as we, we did you know, previous years. And so, so what that means is you, know, you would expect to still see a, 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 a winter surge in, in COVID numbers. And then if you've also got you know, high rates for flu and, and, the, and RSV, you know, it, it's, a sort of a, it's still basically a recipe for, for a lot of infection uh, within uh, or infection risks within crowded indoor environments, and so, so from that perspective, what I'd say is that, you know, if 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 it's possible to still continue to have workers working at home, and if they can work effectively at home, then I think that should be the uh, preferred option. We always remember, and uh, my goodness, I'm sure I've talked to you a million times about this uh, when we were going through the global pandemic, whether it was Easter holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever the holiday was, there was always the concern, and it usually played out that 10 to 14 days later, we would see uh, an increase in this. Are you expecting the same this holiday? Uh, You know, I definitely think so. You know, once you're talking uh, both people getting together with family uh, as well as people traveling and, and, and uh, you know, if they have to use uh, transit uh, and uh, tr- planes and trains and whatever else as well, you know, it's usually a, a big uh, travel, travel uh, period as well. You know, that there's a lot of uh, areas and, you know, points in that whole travel process to, to become infected. And so, so yes, yes, definitely. I'd, I'd say that, uh, you know, there, there, there is that lag uh, that we would normally see and, and I'd expect to see that again. Yeah. Whether or not it's COVID or if it's flu or, or RSV. All right. So obviously, Dr. Kieran Moore came out yesterday and we want to be very clear about this. He did not say it was over. He said there were signs that numbers were going down, which either they are or they aren't. However, he certainly said, don't take your foot off the gas here and and follow your precautions. So what is the messaging going into the holidays or should it be, Thomas? Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. I think uh, 
you know, mask, wearing masks when you can, and particularly in indoor environments is uh, an indoor environments where you're, you know, it could be crowded and also environments where you have people at high risk, uh, you know, ha people wearing masks in those settings are, is, is really important. Uh, you know, if you haven't had uh, your boosters, uh, have your COVID boost booster. And I think even if you haven't had the flu shot, you know, still, still get that. Uh, and, and just be, and because of the flu and RSV uh, also, uh, can be viable on surfaces to sort of keep uh, making sure that you're using hand sanitizer. And so, so they're you know, basic measures still. All right. The common sense uh, continues. Thomas Tenkate with us, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, on uh, heading into the holidays where we are. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much, Scott. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley Show. Uh, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. And, oh, it's an extra special show tonight because everybody is there. It's the social event of the season. Uh, and to talk more about that, Scott Radley is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Have you put on your cocktail dress yet? Are you ready? Uh, I was going with the old sweater, uh, okay, the well, Christmas sweater. Work. But, you know, that'll I can work. have a that, – that's a good look, the yeah. uh, cocktail skirt and a uh, tacky sweater. I think that would be good. It would show off my hairy legs. That would be, it would be something. Yes, we are uh, – for, I think, the first time ever, we're having uh, you and Bill Kelly and Rick Zampern and myself, the four uh, CHML show hosts, all together to yak about whatever. So we've got lots of now, stuff to talk about. And now the first time that we would all been together because I've been a little uh, negligent in, in attending. Is that what you're saying? No name shall be mentioned, but it's the first time, so we're good. we're good. Right. We're doing it. So, uh, so anyway, I'm not used to not asking the questions. I'm not used to not being in control. So, can you give me some uh, like a bit of an idea of what we're going to talk about? What the hell we're going to do on this thing? I have no idea. Uh, you know, basically, what we're doing is just building up footage for our Netflix documentary about how hard done <laughs> we are, uh, so that when Harry and Megan, when that is all gone, then we Megan, can not Megan. Me yes, whatever. My my sister is Megan. It's like I get me. The it's like me. Me, uh, methane or methane. No, yeah, my sister sorry. is named Megan, and so I get it confused constantly. And so I, I, I call her Harry and Megan all the time, and it's not her name. It's Megan. But yes, you're right. Uh, yes, we will. Um, we, we'll, we've got lots of stuff to talk about. The, the list is long of stuff from the year. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be a lot of, like, today's events. We're not going to be talking about the Cahill verdict or those kind of things. It's, it's, it's basically sort of looking at the last year and the coming year and stuff like that and getting all the tall foreheads from the station together, uh, and me being the ex exception. I'll just be leading the charge. <laughs> <laughs> the tall foreheads. Uh, I love that. Um, now, considering that none of us have really been together in the last two and a half, three years, I mean, do you think that it, it, there's an element of that in here that could affect all of this? Absolutely. I don't even know if I would recognize you if I bumped into you on the street. I don't point. think I, exactly. I know you're bald like me, but other than that, I have no idea. Well, I'm starting to look like that guy in that movie that uh, what's the Canadian actor who was in that movie about the overweight guy? Um, uh, whale, the whale that was just out. Uh, um, oh, what's, what's, I have no, I, I have no well, idea people, what you're people, talking about. People know what I'm talking about. There's a Canadian actor. He was in George of the Jungle and um, oh, yeah. oh, Brendan, Brendan, um, Brendan Fraser. Fraser, Brendan Fraser, not Brendan Fraser, 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 Fraser. <laughs> not, whatever. Fraser, not Fraser. That he's listening. 
Fraser is hunting mummies. <laughs> All right. Whatever his name is. So he was just in a movie about a 600-pound guy who was trying to reclaim his life. I am edging towards that these days with being at home all the time and no exercise and like going home and eating chips every night. It's, it's, yes. it's, it's you know. They, now, they, on that point, on yeah. that point, interesting, uh, and we'll sort of sidetrack here, interesting point on a federal government announcing they want the public service uh, employees back uh, for two to three days. I was days. wondering where you were going with it. <laughs> I know. In, in, by the new yes, year. Yes. And there's being a lot of blowback on this. And I never even thought of this, but from the union saying, hey, you want to chat about this? This is part of collective bargaining. This is going to be part of the deal is it? now. Is it? Is well, it part of the I, I don't know. I was did they bargain? To did they bargain well, for the right to be whole? Well, I, you know what? At the end of the day, it might be in the next one. But I was talking to Ian Lee from uh, Carlton yep. on this, and he said there's a whole pile of ugly stuff going on in Ottawa. And this is just the tip of the iceberg simply because Ottawa as a city is bleeding because the vast majority of the people that live in Ottawa are government employees, which is why they rolled the, the sidewalks of the city up at five o'clock. Um, and, and now they're, they're like, they're, they're getting rid of, uh, biz, like of, uh, buildings and such and offices, uh, because they just don't need them anymore. Okay. Transit is suffering. And they say that's one of the reasons they're trying to get, uh, the government employees back is simply because there are so many of them and two, the town is hurting. Two thoughts on this, Scott. The first one is if you work in government in a place where you are required to help people and be somewhere in an office yeah. where people will come in, get in your bloody chair and be there ready to help people. All right. That's the first one. But if you're not, all right, not everybody is in the public service. They like passport offices. If you work in a passport office, don't tell me you're going to work at home two days a week. We yeah. need you there to work with the people to get their passports. But the other one is, all right, if we can close all these buildings and save tens or maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, I want to see that. I want to see our government actually sit. Now, what they'll do, I suspect, is take the money they're saving from the buildings and pour it into vacuous new programs that are going to buy votes at the next election so yeah. we won't save anything. But if we can save $100 million you know, by, by selling off a bunch of buildings that we don't use anymore, bring it on. Bring it on. We, we are spending way too much on government right now. Bring it on. I th also think that there isn't one template that fits everybody here. Like you said, it depends on the, the occupation, the job you actually yeah. have. It depends upon where you are in your career. Um, I mean, there's so many different factors here. I'm not sure mandates are going to be needed and that this just all won't work itself out anyway with well, some that should be want obvious. to and some that don't. Yeah, it should be. It should be logical and obvious and pretty easy, shouldn't it, Scott? If you don't have to be in a building, if you can do your work from home and there's no impact on the public, fine. But if there is an impact on the public, you should not be arguing that you should be able to work at home. It's the same here. You couldn't possibly say, you know what, I'm a uh, front desk worker at McDonald's, but I'm wanting to work two days a week from home. Well, no, you, yeah. that, that, that couldn't possibly work. So, it, yeah, for the government workers who can do their job just as well not being there, I've got no issue with that. I just you don't come know. Into the I just don't know who's arguing that they want the time at home. Uh, you go into the uh, front reception there, and there's just a laptop there with a Zoom secretary on it. Or That's fine. Cut our, cut our taxes. Save our taxes for the, whatever money is being saved by not having buildings and everything else, and let's let's go. But that that stunningly or not surprisingly, that probably would never happen. Could you, could you imagine a scenario in which we save government money and the government pours that back to us in tax savings? No. No. All, all right. Scott Radley uh, continues this with the rest of us uh, after 6 o'clock news, Stick the Scott around. Radley Show. And uh, you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Talk to you in a bit. Thanks, Absolutely. Scott. See you.
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Brad from Hamilton wrote in to say, so the same people that do not want to go to the office to work, they will see an NHL game, a Blue Jay game, they'll go to grocery stores, shopping malls, family or friends gatherings, sickening. Fire them all. (laughs) 